Our guest today has said the following. Scientists don't typically consult comic books when selecting research topics. Funding agencies tend to frown on grant proposals that contain too many citations to DC or Marvel Comics. But the spirit of what if, or what would happen when, infuses both the best scientific research and comic book adventures. Given a decent background in the sciences and a comic book reading history, this correspondent agrees. Our guest today is Dr. James Kakalios, professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Minnesota. In his youth, he too amused himself with the adventures of The Flash, The Fantastic Four, Superman, Ant-Man, The Atom, Spider-Man, etc. In 1988, Dr. Kakalios started teaching a university freshman seminar in physics. He decided to title it, Everything I Need to Know About Physics I Learned from Reading Comic Books, and drew upon the figures of Spider-Man and Superman to illustrate principles of physics. While the writers of comics rely on things that are impossible, i.e. superpowers, uh, the activities of superheroes rate all sorts of questions about physics, and sometimes they get it right. Right or wrong, it's fun, fun to ponder those what-would-happen-if questions. So let's talk about James Kikalios' book, The Physics of Superheroes, with the author, who joins us today from Minnesota. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Kikalios. Thank you very much for having me, Doug. You, uh, you begin the book with an example of a physics calculation using Superman and his legendary ability to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Let, let's start with this. Sure. Superman, um, created in 1938, in fact, just celebrated his 70th birthday, looking pretty good. Wow. He, uh, <laughs> uh, two teenagers out of uh, a suburb of, of Cleveland, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, uh, he had, you know, an amazing set of powers and abilities, but not necessarily the powers and abilities we associate with him today. He couldn't fly, for example, but simply jump great distances, leap an eighth of a mile, say. Uh, he could lift a car overhead, but not a continent. And so, uh, in, in, in uh, my class and in my book, The Physics of Superheroes, we use this as an example, uh, an excuse, to talk about Newton's laws of motion. How fast do you have to be going uh, if you jump up off the ground such that you would slow down due to gravity but still leap a tall building in a single bound? You have to be going nearly 140 miles per hour when you lift up off the ground. How do you achieve such a large you know, initial velocity? Well, through a process that physicists technically call jumping. <laughs> and Superman presses down against the ground due to Newton's third law. Every action has a reaction. The ground presses back up on him, lifting him up, up, and away. Now we use Newton again. How much force does he have to supply to the ground in order to lift up? We know his change in speed. We can estimate how long he spends pressing against the ground. We find that the force is nearly 6,000 pounds which is why we don't see this too often, <laughs> and I'm lucky to leap, leap a trash can in a single pound. So uh, from 6,000 pounds, you say, how, why would he be that strong? This is his, his mightiest leap. Well, in the comic books, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster suggested that Superman was so strong because his home planet Krypton had a larger gravity than that of Earth. So just as our muscles and skeleton structure are adopted to Earth's gravity. So when we go to the moon, which has a gravity only one-sixth as large, we can lift moon cars over our heads and, and leap moon buildings in a single bound, which astonished the moon people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Superman is able to do the same on Earth. 
So then we could use Newton's law of gravitational attraction and figure out what does this imply about the gravity of Krypton. And it, it turns out that it has to have a gravity about roughly 15 times that of Earth. We use Newton one more time. We try to build a planet with that much gravity, and it turns out to be surprisingly hard. Well, we can do it, but it's hard to keep it from exploding, <laughs> which is exactly what Krypton did. So in 1938, these two teenagers, Siegel and Schuster, either understood relativistic astrophysics better than most scientists, or they were really good guessers. Yeah, I, I love the fact that you looked at, uh, you know, to be 15 times the Earth. Well, in our solar system, that means you'd be a gas giant. But, but, but I just wonder, as we're finding all these rocky worlds around other stars, if things might be different. Sure. You know what? That's, that's absolutely true. It, it, it could be that we could find one that's 15 times bigger, in which case the gravity would be 15 times larger. Uh, if we could find one that's stable and uh, uh, won't be torn apart by uh, tidal forces by, as it orbits its sun, then who knows? There might be another race of, of supermen out there waiting <laughs> to be discovered. <laughs> Well, uh, when it comes to getting physics right, uh, you cite a famous example, and this maybe actually got you started on some of this, of Spider-Man failing to save his girlfriend after she was tossed off a building. Right. This, was, this is really was the, uh, the, you know, the key uh, story that got me into all of this. Um, back in 1973, in Amazing Spider-Man number 121, uh, the storyline featured the death of, of then Spider-Man's girlfriend, Gwen Stacy, and uh, with a controversy that has roiled comic book fans ever since, uh, the Green Goblin had kidnapped Gwen, brought her to the top of the George Washington Bridge in order to lure Spider-Man into battle. Uh, during the fight, she's knocked off the top of the bridge and, and falls to her death. Spidey shoots his webbing down after her, stops her at the last second, but then brings her back up to the top of the bridge and discovers to his horror that she is in fact dead even though he caught her in his webbing. And uh, the goblin taunts Spider-Man and says, you know, romantic idiot, uh, she was dead before your webbing reached her. A fall from that height would kill anyone before they struck the ground, which, if that were true, the implications for bungee jumpers and skydivers would say somebody's been lying about something. Uh, but comic book fans have long argued, was it the fall or the webbing that, that killed Gwen Stacy? And, you know, as an example to illustrate uh, impulse and momentum principles in, in my introductory physics class, we discussed this. We analyzed this. Uh, we asked, well, if she falls from a bridge and she's fallen 300 feet and we neglect air resistance, how fast is she going? It turns out to be nearly 95 miles per hour. How much force would the webbing have to supply to stop her in, say, half a second? It's 10 Gs, 10 times the acceleration due to gravity. And so that part doesn't require a suspension of disbelief. There you say, uh, well, if someone fell, they're going 95 miles an hour, we stopped them in a half a second with a force of 10 Gs, you'd say, yeah, and their neck broke. That part would be realistic. So, um, and this is then the, the same physics principle that works in our airbags. Yeah. You're, you're in a car, you're, you're going at some high speed, you have a collision, the car stops, but you keep moving forward. Thanks to Newton's first law, an object in motion remains in motion until acted upon by an outside force. That outside force is coming up in a moment. <laughs> it used to be supplied by either the steering column or the windshield. The time was very short, so the force was very large. The airbag 
deforms under contact. It spreads the force over a larger area, but it also deforms under contact, so it increases the time available to slow you down. And by increasing the time, the force necessary is reduced. And, and the problem there was that Spider-Man's webbing was just not stretchy enough to stop her, at least in this storyline. Uh, so the no. time was too short, so the force was way too large. And sadly, the same physics that saves our lives in automobiles was responsible for Gwen Stacy's death. It's like trying to bungee jump using ropes. Wouldn't be such a good idea. No, yeah. no. Have, <laughs> have, have them nice. They're, they're nice. They should be stretchy yeah. because they should take a nice long time <laughs> to slow you down. Yeah. That's the key thing, yep. Another interesting example of, of uh, how the comics got things right is the Flash and his ability to run across water. Right, right. Now, certainly the, the running itself at super speed, that's not physically possible. And I don't see my job as being just, you know, Professor Grump or, or Dr. No <laughs> and saying, well, this could never happen and this is impossible and what's the deal with the Hulk's pants anyway? But uh, so... What we do in, in my book is we grant each character a one-time miracle exemption from the laws of nature <laughs> and say, well, if you were super strong or could stretch like a rubber band or run at super speed like the Flash, could you run across the ocean? And there the answer is yes. Yes, you could. Because as you, if he presses his foot down fast enough, he's trying to push the water molecules out of the way of his foot faster than they can respond. And so they start to actually behave not like a fluid, but as a solid. Uh, just as if you try to go faster than the speed of sound in air, the air bunches up in front of you and creates a barrier, you know, the sound barrier. Yeah. Uh, and so the same way, he's able to momentarily create uh, a shock front under his foot that provides solid support for him, and he's off and running. So if you, if you can run as fast as the flash, running across an ocean isn't a problem. Stopping bullets isn't a problem. Uh, the, last week, I picked up an object that was going 750 miles an hour when I was on an airplane, and I picked up my can of ginger ale. <laughs> if I'm going 750 miles an hour and the can's going 750 miles an hour, that's not a problem. Exactly. The flash can match his speed to that of a, of a bullet going, you know, 600 miles per hour, and to him, the bullet's standing still. He just plucks it out of the air. So uh, those types of things that he's shown doing in the comic books are consistent, are physically correct, from uh, a uh, physics point of view, once you make that suspension of disbelief. And then we, we talk about the physics principles, and then we show their applications, from airbags in your car to how microwaves, ovens cook your dinner. Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit in the book, but let's, let's talk about where they, they, some things where, where maybe are overlooked or where they get it wrong. You, you're, you're a fan of the atom who's able to shrink down. Also, Marvel Comics had Ant-Man, who also could make himself very small. But this, there's, there's actually quite a few insurmountable problems in getting small like that. Right, absolutely. The, you know, the, the actual mechanics of it, if you try to figure out how miniaturization might work, um, you keep bumping up into the fact that basically the size of atoms is set by fundamental constants of the universe, which is an interesting point in and of itself that there's certain basic uh, things, the charge of an electron, a, a number called Planck's constant, uh, the speed of light, and these show up and, and, and determine the size of an atom. Well, the only way that we, could, we were able to figure out, we looked at what if you took the atoms out, what if you tried to, you can't push them closer together, they're already pretty much touching each other. Uh, only thing we could think of is changing the fundamental constants of, of 
the universe. Now, we don't know how to do this, which is why we use the word constant when we talk about that they're not changeable. Right. But uh, who's to say if, you know, a thousand years, ten thousand years from now, our insights into physical principles change? I personally don't believe so. I don't think that's possible. Um, But uh, that's what it would require. That's what you'd have to have. You also note, though, that uh, if you or I were able to shrink down like Ant-Man, we'd probably have some trouble with our vision. We'd have some trouble with our vision. That's exactly right. The, the iris in our eyes is thousands of times larger than the wavelength of light. But if you're down to the size of an ant, you're only about maybe ten times bigger than the, the wavelength of light. And at that point, you start to get what's called diffraction effects. You start to get the light interfering with itself as it passes through the iris which is exactly why insects don't have eyes like humans. Insect eyes are very different from human eyes because when you're dealing with something that's that small, you need a different set of optics. So he would have to have some sort of corrective lenses of some sort. Um, Also, uh, his voice, you know, our vocal cords can be uh, mimicked as uh, just like a a little pendulum swinging back and forth. Not really, but you can make an approximation of that. What happens when you shrink down the length of a pendulum, you might notice, you could just try this at home, uh, it swings faster. The time for it to go through an arc is a lot shorter, which is the same way as saying the frequency goes up. So not only is the Ant-Man a quarter of an inch tall, but you'll talk in a high squeaky voice, too. (laughs) Just the thing to to, to throw fear into the hearts of evildoers. (laughs) And speaking of vision... uh... There was a great in the, a teaser in the material that, uh, that uh, Newman Communications sent out about how Fantastic Four's Invisible Woman, you noted, well, if light's passing right through her, how's she going to be able to see anything? And I, I want to compliment you on how you were able to help the people at Marvel come up with a more plausible explanation of how she can see than cosmic rays. Right. So the Invisible Woman, member of the Fantastic Four, uh, you know, can com- turn completely transparent. But if light passes through her, then it's not stopping in the rods and cones in her eye. And, and why isn't she blind? Well, the, the, the nice thing about these, the, looking at analyzing the superheroes in this way, is it gets you to, I mean, physics is not about knowing all the answers. Physics is about asking the right questions. Because once you ask the right questions of nature, you typically see, get to see how the answer should be. And, and so here we say, not why isn't she blind? Let's ask a different question. Why can we see anything at all? And we see anything at all because the atoms have resonant absorption and scattering in a narrow portion of the, of the solar spectrum, of the electromagnetic spectrum that we call visible light. But there's lots of things that are transparent to visible light. Window glass, for example. We can see through it that by very definition it means that the visible light passes through. But the light that's at slightly shorter wavelengths in the ultraviolet gets absorbed by window glass, which is why you typically don't get a suntan through the windshield of your car. And the the light bulbs used in tanning booths have to have a very special type of glass to let the ultraviolet rays through. So um, uh, presumably, her miracle exemption from the laws of nature involves being somehow (laughs) uh, able to shift the resident absorption of all the atoms in her body from the visible portion of the spectrum to the ultraviolet. Sure. And then she's pretty much like window glass, <laughs> and uh, the light, visible light passes right through her, but she still will be able to see the ultraviolet light. There's quite a bit of ultraviolet light around. We just don't notice it because our eyes aren't sensitive to it.
And you may ask, is it possible to have living cells that don't absorb visible light, that are transparent in the visible? And the answer is yes. Your corneas, your eyeballs would not function if you didn't have living cells over the front of it that let visible light through. I'm, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm using them now. Exactly right. <laughs> We're speaking with author Dr. James Kakalios about his entertaining and informative book, The Physics of Superheroes. Let's go to what something that may be possible or impossible, depending on how you do it. A lot of characters in comic books want, uh, get huge in size. And can you explain why the physics of that's kind of tricky? It, it, it definitely is. If they're just getting bigger and adding mass, you have to ask where are all those extra atoms coming from? <laughs> and uh, even with. And, and if you say energy, you know, and mass can be interconverted through E equals MC squared, that equation goes in the wrong direction. It would take an enormous amount of energy to produce just one atom, uh, a ridiculous amount. So that would not be very effective. There again, I guess we'd have to do the same thing as when we deal with shrinking characters. If we can change the fundamental constants of nature and to make the size of the atom smaller, presumably there might be like a knob where we can go in the reverse direction. <laughs> <laughs> and change these the, these constants so that the atoms themselves would become bigger. And that's pretty much the only way I can think of it that would, uh, well, I hesitate to use the phrase, make sense. <laughs> but right. it's the only way that I could see around it. Even if you solve the problem how to get bigger, there's this, this square cube law you're going to run up against. Ah, well, that's exactly right. Thank you. That's exactly right. There's a separate problem because as you get bigger... You get heavier, but your bones are only able to support the, the, the weight of your body according to their cross-section. I mean, when you think about it, if you have a fishing line that can hold um, a 20-pound fish, uh, 20-pound fishing line, and you want to hold up a 40-pound fish, you don't make a longer line. You get a fatter line. You get a thicker line and because it, it's the cross-section of that line that determines its strength and its ability. The length is irrelevant. So, but you grow in all three dimensions, your mass increases as you, as in all three dimensions. If you go get 10 times bigger, your mass and your weight become 1,000 times bigger, but your bones can only get 100 times stronger, able to support your weight. And even though in your bones there's a lot of redundancy in our skeleton structure, uh, eventually you reach the point at about somewhere between 60 to 100 feet where you just stood up and you'd break your back. <laughs> you'd break your back, you'd break your legs, your body would not be able to support your weight. Another reason we frown on people trying to develop growth rays in the, in the laboratory. Yes. And those fools called us mad. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about conservation of energy. Uh, use a wonderful example of the Flash and how much food he'd need to, to burn to run this fast. Absolutely. I mean, we, we eat uh, to get raw materials, to get atoms in our body for, for cell replacement. But we also do it because certain, uh, certain materials, you know, organic matter, has stored chemical energy that our bodies have evolved and learned how to transform into the energy we need to do things like maintain our body temperature and to keep our blood flowing and also to run, to run, to, to walk, to do all the things we do. The flash running close to the speed of light needs an awful lot of energy. <laughs> and if we, when you plug in the numbers, he's got just to run at a fraction of the speed of light he needs to eat 150 million cheeseburgers. <laughs> so even chewing at super speed, that's going to be an awful lot. So, 
some point there we have to say, okay, this, you know, doesn't look right from a physics point of view, but when you consider all the good he's done for, for us here over the years, I'm willing to give the Flash a pass. Yeah. Well, you have some great physics uh, asides in the book, which I love. You give a historical example of how uh, how Lord Kelvin started out with the idea the Earth was once a ball of molten rock, but he said if it was, it should have cooled off a long time ago. Exactly right. Uh, this was this was a, a huge debate and controversy in science uh, around the turn of the century. Uh, Lord Kelvin, one of the smartest uh, physicists alive at the time, one of the experts in uh, thermodynamics, the uh, absolute temperature scale, degrees Kelvin, is named after him. He concluded that if the Earth was a molten rock, as you say, how long should it take for it to cool to its present temperature? A couple of million years. The only problem was that Charles Darwin had a theory of evolution that talked about the uh, generation of species, and the problem there was if the Earth was only a couple of million years old, there wasn't enough time for evolution to have been effective. It had to have been at least uh, a couple of hundred million years old, and Kelvin said, no, that's not right. There was this controversy. There was this disagreement. Nobody understood what the problem was. Darwin passed away. Never knew. He always believed that the theory was correct because it worked so well to explain other biological problems. He just didn't understand the age of the Earth problem. Soon after, uh, just years after um, Darwin passes away, radioactivity is discovered. And it's discovered that there's an internal source of heat inside the uh, uh, Earth. And so it's going to take much longer for the Earth to cool down, just like it takes much longer for your kitchen to cool down, even if you have the air conditioner on, if you have the oven on at full blast and the door open. You have an internal source of heat that you're fighting against. And so that internal source of heat, now when we use radioactivity to date the Earth, four and a half billion years, totally long enough for evolution to have worked. But an interesting scientific controversy that shows that uh, the real world can be just as exciting as a comic book. Exactly, and it's something we've only recently understood, uh, how geckos walk up walls. You note that a real-life Spider-Man ability uh, may not be that far off. Exactly right. Uh, gecko lizards use millions of tiny little fibers built into each little pad on their foot, um, and these use a very weak electrostatic uh, attraction, basically static cling, uh, to adhere to surfaces. Scientists have recently developed artificial tape which has millions of nanoscale little filaments, and <laughs> they can hold up certain weights. And there's a lot of technical challenges that remain before they can make tape that has enough filaments that can scale up and hold up a person's weight. But if they ever do, if they ever make gecko gloves and gecko shoes, I'm telling you now, I'm never waiting for the elevator again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about electricity just a little bit. You know that there's an X-Man villain named Magneto. He levitates himself with magnetism, and apparently uh, they're able to do this uh, these days with frogs. Magneto, sometimes we try to escape. He can levitate himself somehow. And how does he do that? Well, not all metals are magnetic. Gold is, is non-magnetic. It's called diamagnetic. Uh, silver and water is diamagnetic. And since we're mostly water, so are we. I don't know if one could levitate a person using a, a large magnetic field, but I do know that you can levitate a frog. Because if you Google diamagnetic 
levitating frog, and who hasn't? The first link that shows up, uh, one of the first, is a, a link to a video from the High Magnetic Field Lab out in the Netherlands, and you can see a frog that is floating around, and you would think that he's on the space station, but he's just in the Netherlands, and in a magnetic field that's about 200,000 times stronger than the Earth's field, and in this way uh, is able to float thanks to magnetic repulsion. Let's wrap up here with uh, some things comic books really do get wrong, and I think near, near the top of that list has to be Superman lifting a building up, sort of having it tilting off at a rakish angle and flying off with it. Exactly. He's always doing things like this, picking up ocean liners or jet <laughs> engines or, or office buildings. You know, buildings aren't meant to be picked up. <laughs> they're just not. And even if they're even if they're like in the buildings that apparently, you know, dot metropolis, which you know always have these black solid bottoms so that they're not connected to any city water or power <laughs> or any sort. Um, you know, you pick it up, and there's these enormous twisting forces, torques. They would make the structure crumble under its own weight. And so he should not, you know, be, get to wherever he's going with cheering people and everything. He, he should be get there with a, holding a couple of cinder blocks and some piping. And you should always tell where Superman's been by the trail of construction material that he leaves behind. So that's, that's one example that even with a, a whole handful of miracle exemptions, it's hard to make it work. Well, I, I, it, this has been fun, but I think the final question, I think, would be, uh, uh, which comic book innovation do you think will perhaps next move from sci-fi to science reality? Tough one, I know. Iron Man. Okay. Iron Man and his cybernetic helmet. When Iron Man wants to fire his, his repulsor rays in his, in his palm or activate his jet boots, he doesn't have to press any buttons or pull any triggers. He thinks about it, and it happens. And in the comic books, that's explained because his helmet picks up his brain waves and sends the signal to the, the boots or to the palm. Scientists, one of my colleagues at the University of Minnesota, Ben He in the Department of Biological, uh, Biomedical Engineering, and others around the world, are developing cybernetic helmets that detect the EEG patterns that when you think of trying to move, say, a computer cursor from one point to another, and they've developed systems that allow you to actually play computer games without a joystick, without a handheld set, but simply think about where you want to move the, the cursor, and it moves. And they're not trying to make um, better computer games. They're obviously trying to help develop devices to help paralyze people or the next generation of prosthetic devices. But back in the 60s, if you asked me in 2008, which aspect of Iron Man would be the closest to reality, the last thing I would have said would have, was the cybernetic helmet. Mm. But that's the part that I think actually will be coming relatively soon. Um, not, you know, not on the corner store or anything, but it will be having a real impact helping people's lives. The book is The Physics of Superheroes. We've been speaking with author James Kakalios, who's only really, I think, stopped from following the example of physics professor Ray Palmer, also known as the Adam, by not yet locating that white, white dwarf star matter <laughs> meteorite. Well, and I don't look too good in a blue and red unitard. That's the other thing. <laughs> been a lot of fun, and, and I hope you keep doing this, uh, this course. As you said in the beginning, I don't even know about no balls being thrown off eclipse, of but when you're talking about <laughs> Cape Crusaders, they're totally with it. Funny stuff. Exactly right. Well, thank you very thank much. Thank you, sir. That pretty much does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to 
Radio Parallax. I am your faithful servant, Douglas Everett. We'll see you again next week.